Welcome to the Women of Regenerative Ag podcast. This is a platform for the extraordinary women leading the regenerative agricultural movement and the transformation of our societies around the world. They are on the ground, creating critical shifts in seemingly intractable and highly unsustainable systems, and they have been doing so for a long time. I'm Aurora Flynn, creator of the show. In this series, we look to explore beyond the soil, to the underlying theme of transformation itself across size, scale, multiple dimensions, from that very internal landscape of human consciousness to the outer manifestation in the world around us, be it in the form of agricultural management practices, tools, and techniques, to culture, economics, policy, as well as the built environment. This series is a joint venture with Soil for Climate and my own organization, the Outer Borders Agency, where we work to help transform the human social infrastructure and the built environment to create truly resilient and regenerative societies. These recordings originally aired as interactive live stream interviews on social media. They were held during the initial months of the U.S. COVID lockdown, and due to limited facilities, we sometimes had to get creative with our locations and dealt with the occasional technical issue. Please enjoy these incredible women. You're listening to the Women of Regenerative Ag podcast. My guest today is Precious Perry, a smallholder farmer, regenerative agriculture practitioner, and trainer based in Zimbabwe. She is an accredited field professional for holistic management education for communities by the Savory Institute. She works with rural communities through her organization, Earth Wisdom, as well as other partners in Southern and East Africa to regenerate degraded communal lands. Precious is the African Coordinator for Regeneration International and is a part of their steering committee. Her role is to connect with other regenerative work in the African region to continue bringing this work to the global movement. Thank you, Aurora. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I laugh a lot, so <laughs> I hope that's all right. <laughs> bring it. We love giggles. This is the world um, needs it. Time for furious yeah. laughing and dancing. Um, yeah. Listen, I want to touch base with you because when we did, when we last tried to speak um, in May, lockdown had happened for you in Zimbabwe for a couple of weeks. The president was looking at lifting it um, that coming Monday. Simultaneously, the food agency at the UN dropped that incredible announcement that we were looking at, you know, a sort of a biblical proportion level of, of a global hunger pandemic. And they were, a focal point was Zimbabwe, and they were saying this was because of the coronavirus lockdown and the reactions to it. And of course, that perfect storm doesn't just happen in a silo, right? That's this is a, they're talking about a tipping point of multiple systems for a lot of different reasons, and we aren't going to go into all those reasons today. But I would love to just start by hearing what it's been like for you, what's been going on, what's what it's it like on the ground now what are the biggest current concerns for communities? Can you help us just be, be there with you to kind of understand what that's like? Okay, um, well, maybe first of all, just to say hi to everyone who's watching on Facebook Live. We have people uh, watching? <laughs> we do. Uh, <laughs> and uh, thank you to you, Aurora, and uh, Soul for Climate for organizing this. And 
episode one, I'm the first person mm-hmm. to speak, and Aurora said it's going to be juicy. I don't know about that. <laughs> I hope that you find it juicy. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful time. Um, I guess beauty is what you make of any situation. Um, I've seen lots of resilience in the human race and uh, especially the people of my country (laughs) that I'm really proud of. I'm in Zimbabwe, uh, speaking from Victoria Falls. Of course, like the whole world, we were also hit by the unprecedented uh, COVID-19. And uh, I mean, we've evolved from lockdown to loosening a bit of the lockdowns to wearing masks and uh, alongside that was uh, food shortages, people losing jobs, um, lots of insecurity in terms of income and um, most people moving from the towns to rural areas because um, there were no jobs and uh, in particular my town Victoria Falls were tourist uh, attraction so most of our income really is dependent on people who come here. But then airports are closed and our big hubs in Africa, like Ethiopia and South Africa have been closed. Um, So obviously people were really impacted um, economically. And, um, you know, there's a nice smooth movement between rural communities and the town of trade in food and meats. Um, that was a bit shaken for a bit and with the unstable weather conditions, food, food, general food security has been a challenge even for rural local farmers. But this year was full of hope, but then there came along COVID, <laughs> which brought together complications. Um, so honestly, what's happening right now on the ground is I think everyone's just managing um, really by the day and uh, what I've really seen is people really took the instructions in very well uh, and people did the most they could. But then unfortunately, how do you lock down when you don't have food? Yes. So you, you had to either choose to be killed by either COVID-19 or hunger. And that's really tough to watch your children starve to death. Um, so people took all the risks. But um, thankfully, our cases, uh, as of today, they were around 525 and uh, yeah 525 and then 64 cases have recovered we had six deaths Um, of course you become thankful because we are aware that it could have been worse and maybe our health system is not really in a position to handle if the the cases were to escalate so uh uh-huh and then it has also built lots of community and lots of love relation i saw the spirit of ubuntu rising in us which is i share what i have um if if one sinks we are all sinking because it doesn't it doesn't really help for you to feel comfortable around your small space when your neighbor is hungry because then petty crimes will come in and that creates conflict and insecurities so i've seen lots of resilience really in the human race and in my people and lots of uh organizations i was in the um the rapid response task force team who were handling the food security people gave donations to just immediately supply the vulnerable families yeah i was seeing some really beautiful stories actually in some of the papers there about neighbors starting to feed thousands of people 
right. um, trading in the clothes to get some of the, what is it, maize is one of the stables? Is that who you say it? Yeah, maize. maize. Yeah, we make, yeah. Yeah. We yeah. make a, a, thick, a thick porridge called Ischualasadza Pab Nshima, depending on what language you speak. sounding good and this is immense because even last like last november some of the numbers were like half the population were food insecure before covid so that's seven about seven and a half million people were looking at a meal a day was what they were talking about so that's just population and and honestly we were really coming from one of the worst ever droughts that ever hit us. And yes. we had a very unfortunate situation of Cyclone Idai in the Eastern Highlands where people flooded to death. And then on the uh, other side of Zimbabwe, the, the drier area, which is where I am, a total complete failure of crops because there was absolutely no rain. Wow. So we have seen all those climate extremes and. um, um, if you look at the USAID um, reports at that time, uh, literally this half of the population of Zimbabwe was on food aid for 11 months. That yes. means whatever people harvested, they just fed themselves for just one month. Right. Yeah. Right. And now you're looking at it encroaching into the middle class, which seems to be like that's sounding like that's more unusual now to have civil servants and healthcare workers and that sort of lawyers struggling to feed as well. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Uh, the unfortunate thing is then we are, we are, uh, we are we're a farming country and uh, smallholder farmers really take care of about 70% of food and, and things like that in our country. But then um, the escalation of rural populations has also brought pressure in those spheres. So there's, there's a lot of need for things to really change. Um, especially if we can go back to uh, our industries being open and tourism working again. Right. Yeah, it would really, yeah, help. Well, so Precious, like there's, and we can hear there's a lot of sort of mitigating circumstances that have kind of led up to this tee off um, to the situation. But what is it about sort of the food systems in Zimbabwe that's creating the lack of resiliency as well, despite everything else, obviously you're saying that is kind of out of that control, like a drought and like, you know, and like the, the lockdown itself, can you talk a little bit about the systemic design and imports and exports, etc.? Mm-hmm. So I guess we are mostly smallholder farm uh, supplied, and seventy uh, percent of our population about is rural based and uh, subsistently farming to just feed their families. But unfortunately, because of our you know, different agricultural systems failing, which I think we'll delve into later when we talk yeah. more about generative agriculture. Um, yeah. We've seen year after year, whether we have good rains or bad rains, we've seen droughts. Um, so some droughts are really, um, some people call them pastoral, some people call them man-made, and then you have ecological droughts. So these droughts are influenced by maybe decisions that we've made in our farming practices and how our soils have been depleting over time. Mm-hmm. And, um, that has led us into really importing most of our foods and um, even in a situation where we would have produced our foods, uh, we have sort of a, a little buying and uh, export, uh, importing that we've been doing uh, in Botswana, South Africa. Okay. And so the borders closed, that chain of supply was sort of threatened, but then it's, it's open to a certain extent, but I think... Um, 
we are all aware now, um, including most of my really amazing friends in the cities, that we're not really much linked to the soil and the soil story and why it's important. Ah. Lives to depend on it. I think that uh, every, everything that's bad that happens always has that... Uh, yeah. You guys call it silver lining. So I'll be trying to put <laughs> in your statements. Um. <laughs> I think that's really accurate. I think that was something we talked about, sort of that phenomenon amongst regenerative agriculturalists in general, where there's either a suffering of the body or a suffering of the land that has them suddenly go, oh, soil is really important. That there is that yeah. silver lining. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So soil is really important. So everyone... Um, we have groups of people now who are planting in, in open urban spaces and school grounds, oh, wow. planting vegetables and uh, eating vegetables from my friends' gardens. They are <laughs> doing much better than I am. So, like, it was for all this, you know, because, yeah, like, uh, in most cases, I have always been the girl who is always muddy in her hands. But yeah. then, like, everyone has a has a has a, a patch of any vegetables they really want to show you, and they want to do that best, and and they want to give you the vegetables. So this is really new, I, right? Is what you're saying? Oh, yeah. Like everyone will be at work most of the times, but then <laughs> the importance of food and growing food and the health of soil. You can see that it's really a start, and uh, I think that uh, we who are in the regenerative agriculture movements, be it in urban areas or peri-urban or communal, we have such a challenge now to take up the story using the momentum that COVID-19 gave us. Because yes. everyone suddenly found themselves with lots of time and then they decided to learn more about the soil. So I do feel like eventually, really, the dependence in uh, unstable and un un unpromised food systems will have to stop. Because right. South Africa also had its own share of problems and they needed to take care of their population and yes. to carry a burden of a neighboring country becomes too much and that yes. makes food here very expensive right now. So yes. products are just going up and up and up and uh, it's because maybe we didn't have our storehouses in order. Yes. So yeah, okay. I think it's a lot of learning and we can only go forward from now. Yeah, it's a phenomenal moment in time for us to kind of consider, especially sort of these economic packages start being developed internationally, like what that money gets invested into and what we're actually pumping forward, especially as we look at, you know, just timing with the, the carbon allotment we have left to actually keep this under 1.5 degrees Celsius. Like this is the time and it's going to help with community, whether they engage in that kind of thought process or not, to be going regenerative agriculture is what we have to do to simply survive. I, I love hearing that these gardens are popping up because it was the same here. I was putting in my own and my mother's just torn up this whole old pool that was in there and she's got all these and they're huge. And I'm like, mom, okay. I don't have to, yeah. this is, you know, this is part of the, the inspiration of recognizing that we are not, we are not resilient enough yet. And we don't have yeah. multiple systems there to support and sustain. Um, and you but mentioned. I, I was just thinking, Aurora, um, you can imagine, of course, maybe we started planting gardens, we started being aware of food and its importance and its, uh, the, the importance of healthy food in our societies yes. um, during COVID. Uh, so, usually, the human tendency is um, if there's a crisis, we'll align to solve the crisis. Yeah. And if, uh, if things get back to normal, right. what is our new normal that we're embracing? 
And right. I think that's where our work is at right now as uh, regenerative agriculture, the conversation, the dialogue, it should really try and uh, step up what we had already started. To yeah. still see the open, uh, the open urban spaces as sources of food, to still yeah. see that link between communal and the towns as a place of trade in the food and keeping the economies alive. So Absolutely. I think that's the, that's the big work that we have. It is the big work. I think there's a, there's a vantage point to it and also making sure that we're not talking about this as a siloed separate sort of experience, that these are integrated systems that are reaching tipping points, whether it's you know, a lockdown, inflation rates, other pandemics that will come, you know, national debt, like all of them interweave into this, you know, the civil unrest that is potentially possible um, with a baseline of deadened soils, right? People can't feed themselves. So um, as I, I want to make sure as, as sort of the weeks and months unfold that that complex story is also understood, that nothing is separate from one another and they're spinning out into a, a place we're not going to, we're on for a fair amount of chaos. And I think this is one of the ways to mitigate that. Um, I, yeah, I really, that's the complexity we're managing. Nothing is separate. No, um, no. Yeah. And, and how can you, how can you ride with the chaos and what, how can we create yeah. from yeah. that? Yeah, no, that's, and this is, this is the heart of sort of transformative, uh, I think, thinking that I really want to get into you, uh, with you and your work with, um, with the different uh, communities you're involved in. I do want to just really briefly touch, you talked about the, the mud on your hands, and I just really loved when you shared with me about, you know, a little bit about where you grew up and about your people, who you come from, um, and when you first started noticing soil. In Wange communal lands, and one of the communities, and the chief Nelukoba or Chief Tingani, it was called Mabali. Um, that's obviously not my original place of birth, but life circumstances brought us there and I was about seven. So really that's home. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that's all I've ever known uh, growing up with my grandmother. Um, she was a tough and hardworking woman. Um, but unfortunately at that time, so it was a, a granny headed household with seven girls. Uh, oh, wow. I, Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was the oldest. Um, and so it was me, my young sister, and five cousin sisters. Um, so in Africa, there's a, a certain thing that uh, when a lady has a baby, sometimes they can't really take their baby to their new marriage. So my cousin sisters suffered that. Um, so they had to stay with my grandmother and us. Um, my dad had passed on and yeah, all that. So... Mm. Yeah, so it was, um, that obviously meant we had uh, little or no things to use to actually make our land productive. We eat cow manure, we mm. didn't have any cattle, we didn't have goats, we just had chickens. That I got when we got to that area of Mabale in uh, Wangi communal lands, I got it through, um, it's a beautiful culture called, I'll use the Ndebele word and try and explain it, it's called which means um, a person gives you a, a, a hen or two chickens and a cock, for example. Mm -hmm. And then they say every time the, the hens have uh, chicks, you will have maybe two. Two are yours and then you bring the others. And we ended up with a big fowl run of chickens from that. Uh, started really from scratch, but it's really um, a culture of abundance and giving. Um, but... I being the oldest in the home, so I started helping my grandmother in the field. 
I can hold an ox-drawn plow when we hired it from our neighbors or when our neighbors came to help us. So really, I started interacting with soil from as early as eight, nine years old. Mm. Yeah, and when we worked in people's fields for food, I would go with my grandmother to weed, um, take out the weeds, and then they give you like a bucket of maize, and then that's what you use for your maize meal. So from that early stage, that totally influenced my thinking because half the time the crops were failing and it will be hunger after hunger after hunger. So honestly, I think my brains were triggered to just have that natural interest. Though I wasn't aware that I had it, <laughs> but my life just followed that path. I don't know if you know what I mean. I, and then only now do I look back and say, oh, okay, yeah, I understand. I obviously would have been very curious about it. So. Mm, in being in a rural area there were these courses at our junior high school mm -hmm. that girls will be in the food and nutrition class and the fashion and fabrics class as the only girl in an agriculture class with boys so starting from there like <laughs> yeah so i didn't even do english literature i went to the agriculture class things like that okay. so yeah so i think it became natural and i had those questions from the start Beautiful. So then where did that lead you to? Because you ended up working, um, getting involved with the Savory Institute. Yes. And then so this, this track and this path of my life keeps taking me into natural sciences, geography, agriculture, until I'm at university, which didn't require, by the way, student internships. But I heard about the Savory Center here, the Africa Center for Holistic Management. Yeah. Every time we were on school holidays, I checked myself into the Africa Center for Holistic Management as an intern for absolutely for free because I just couldn't believe, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe the relationship that was um, going on between the cattle, the chickens and ticks and birds and how these animals moved on the land. And this was a center in Wange communal lands. But when you look at it, you look at the grasses that they've grown, the water that they've brought back. Yes. It, <laughs> it looks like you are nowhere near home. And yeah. for me, I thought this is the place. And by that time, most of uh, my friends and colleagues, we were at a university in South Africa. I was in a certain scholarship. And so when you are in school, most people would then just have generally preferred to find jobs in South Africa. I totally came back home. And when I was done with school, I just found the center. I was like, hi guys. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, it was really amazing. There was a, a Alan's son, Roger Savory, who yeah. I was working with the whole time. And he okay. said, well, we don't know where to put you, but where would you like to start? So I literally did everything from photocopying to taking care of a lodge that they had. And I was fitting in department after department until that, I ended up a training coordinator. Yeah. Oh, so wow. The story. <laughs> but I've totally enjoyed working uh, with holistic management and I got amazing privileges to work with Alan and Jody and all the amazing people yes. that have gone ahead of me in that uh, field. That's phenomenal, Precious. Okay, so you really got seeped in all of it. It's amazing where passion can take you. And you're like, no, that's it. I will do it. Let me in. Let me in. Let me in. Yeah. It's a bit of a jumble. You don't know when you actually noticed it, but you sort of track it like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Oh, I yeah. felt... Um, 
I, I, re I resonate with that a lot too. I felt a bit similar when I discovered holistic management and I met Abby and Spence uh, Smith and I was like, I don't know, Maybe but I know I'm up. coming up. I'm coming to visit. Um, <laughs> um, so then how did that lead to Regenerative International and your work as the African coordinator there? So I worked as a, um, an African coordinator at the Africa Center for Holistic Management, but um, you know, you just keep growing and um, I sort of wanted to engage more and uh, you know, expand my knowledge, but still remain in the tracks of holistic management. Yeah. And uh, so I'm still an accredited professional in holistic management. So I'm still a trainer under Savory Institute. I still partner with the Africa Center for Holistic Management. Yes. And then I stumbled again onto Regeneration International, which was really, you know, <laughs> um, a, a bigger picture that I thought, okay, yeah. now about movement building inspiring grassroots policy consumers just keeping that communication alive that yes. there's actually a new hope of agriculture where humans again can get to dance with nature and actually improve landscapes at much bigger scales and honestly they support holistic management permaculture all sorts of things that will rebuild our solution, which is the soil. So I really got attracted there and I spoke for the first time on their World Food Day and then eventually got invited to be part of the steering committee. So mm. I'm one of the sort of founding members. We discussed, you know, what is the way forward? What is the thing that we can support now? And as an educator and holistic management, I also get to input on, you know, how can we really continue to improve the way we're making decisions and, uh, supporting whoever needs our support at whatever time but it's really a big network building um, effort that we're doing well so precious can you i you know we, we have a variety of people in the audience in all likelihood some people are just discovering soil and and going oh my god this is an, an incredible solution and other people uh who have a, a greater understanding of the scope of management and what that takes in the interconnected systems that require uh, adjusting for that kind of regeneration to happen so when you're talking about holistic management, um, I think it gets easily collapsed with things with megafauna grazing things, right? They go, it's, it's mob grazing, it's intensive grazing, it's, uh, it's, you know, there's all these terminologies that they use in science to kind of express what is essentially just restoring that integral relationship of hooved animals back onto their grasslands. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know, regenerative agriculture versus holistic management and what were, for you, what that looks like? Okay, so maybe let me, I think it's really important for us to just define in simple terms what holistic management is, because mm -hmm. um, what I've seen, like you say, we get uh, like sucked up into the practices or the tools, <laughs> um, yet holistic management is really a framework of decision making. It's a simplified, simple framework of making life decisions from household level, farm level, government level, uh, with lots of different aspects in it that would guide you to define what kind of life or what values do you stand for um, in, in the future? What do you see your community or your life being? So that doesn't take a farmer only or uh, a government only. I think it's everyone's desire. So it's really a, a simple decision-making framework that can be used by anyone to manage the complexities of society, culture, economy, and the environment. And I think it's, it easily gets uh, slid or confused 
into saying holistic management is holistic praising yes. because i think alan <laughs> alan really developed holistic management from his work in africa where he was really seeking for answers yeah. um on what has caused this vast degradation that we are seeing in our african landscapes so of course that with that came along a new tool in the land management a tool of um, living organisms which was holistic grazing and the behavior of animals that we call animal impact yes. um, so holistic management is way broader than that it's really a framework of thinking and working and right can be used <laughs> this is brilliant yeah. so alan already knew that he already knew that you had to that it was it was holding to values and intentions to actually mm -hmm. have an impact that you were aiming for it's a, it's a, an immense strategy and a way to frame your thoughts and to keep you accountable it's, yeah exactly right this frame isn't just about keep you accountable lots of planning lots yes. of really i think working on your tours because you are consistently working with a changing environment. The environment is not static. It self-organizes with whatever management tool you put on it. Yes. So that's the complexity there. So, yes. I mean, it's really broad and deep. And um, yes. thankfully, we have several institutes <laughs> and all the hubs around the world and all the educators and all the auroras and me's. And so there's a lot of information dotted everywhere that people can access to learn more. Absolutely. It's very, people get very enraptured with the idea of soil and the soil microbiome. And it is, it's a phenomenal uh, life altering perspective change. And it absolutely will not regenerate without the management and without the shift in awareness. Right. And that's what I always really uh, respected about Alan was that I just went, oh, he grabbed onto a shift in consciousness that had to come like a whole different way of living your life. And that that's very difficult for humans, right? That human social infrastructure is what I became passionate about. And I went, how does that move? And we know uh, from, you know, even what the UN says, UNESCO talks about culture being the driver of sustainable development and proliferation, right? It's the underlying mantle. And here's your renewable technologies. Here's your grazing pattern, right? But the culture and the sub indicators in the culture are going to move it like this is the pizza crust and there are different toppings we create uh -huh. but uh -huh. you you need a phenomenal crust and so I, that's how i think we always have this orientation of going let's get the renewable technologies let's do uh, regenerative agriculture but what you're really talking about is shifting that under the creation or the formation of that mantle and foundation first and everything else will move otherwise it's like sweeping sand off a beach so if you look at it from a living systems point of view Yes. And some people say a whole system's point of view. We are, I think as uh, the human race, we're really intimidated by whole systems or living systems because we've so much really delved into managing in parts. That's why we, we, we really get uh, excited when we're just talking about one practice and not the bigger pictures. <laughs> yes. we, we love to pick parts and then manipulate them and then fit them in there. <laughs> What else happens around when you fit in whatever part you fit in into an, into an ecosystem? So, yeah, I think that's, that's what I've really enjoyed about holistic management. And, and sometimes it's really difficult to say this is what will work in this environment. You can't generalize to say this is what will work in Zimbabwe because in Zimbabwe is huge by virtue of in a family, there are five people. <laughs> and 
those are totally different. Let's start from there without talking about the 13 million, you know. Yes. So, so really, it's, it's, you know, when we say social, cultural constructs, yes. that the complexity there alone, and then the economic construct, the complexity there alone. Yeah. So it's layers that you're managing. And, and I think you need that bravery to, to approach them. Yeah. Totally. It takes a lot of curiosity. Uh, courage, curiosity, and humility in my mind, because you were really yeah. looking at, um, you were looking, we were talking about, sorry, these layered constructs. And I think uh -huh. when, you know, what, what we have are sort of these really, and I want to get into culture now with you a bit in the communities you're uh -huh. working with, because uh -huh. there's an affinity like you're talking about to go for the little section, to go for the piece, to make it segmented and linear and, and to hyper-focus. And it's actually a neurological skill set you have to build. It's building a muscle. That way of thinking is a very right brain perspective oriented. The right brain loves to look at the whole picture. It's not a virtue, at least in Western cultures, to, um, to really operate within the realm of, um, of intuition, of emotive expression, of... Um, of the the holistic picture that's the right brain's perspective job the left brain's very linear it, it's didactic it likes to grab it's very functional that way um but it reduces right that's what came up with the scientific method which is why the scientific method is both brilliant and it's one piece of the puzzle um so this is this is actually a skill set we're literally talking about building in the way in your cognitive processes in your way of perceiving the world and so that's sort of like a little little formative chunk here as I want to talk about your work with communities because I'm fascinated by the cultural aspects um, and the different uh, everything from bureaucracies to politics to all of that because that has been my passion working with a lot of indigenous communities um, and government bodies around the world now. Um, and you're, you're a, a very wise ninja at this stuff. So can you talk to us a bit about no, no, and that's great because if you thought you actually were, you wouldn't be. So you are. <laughs> we could just roll. In it. my culture, the young people don't talk a lot. So if you say I'm wise, I get really scared. The oh, sorry. We take from the elders. I suppose we sound wise when we talk to other people, but half the time we we listen. <laughs> but it's all right. I'll take I, it. No, I think that's really wise. I just know from our conversations, you said some pearls that I wish I could have given to academia that I had just come out of and just been like, listen to Precious. I'm going to go now because these are, these are, some of them are counterintuitive and they take wisdom building. And that's simply what we're talking about. Experience, processing, perspective. So um, could you tell us a bit about the cultures and the people that you're primarily engaging with? Um, and sort of guiding ethos you may have for engaging with them. Yeah, and uh, I mean, that's broad, but you can also be throwing in some uh, questions if you feel like there's stuff that um, is obviously hiding. Um, I'm also from a culture where we don't speak much about what we do, so it's very difficult. Ah, <laughs> fascinating. Okay. <laughs> the ultimate nut to crack. We're, we're so honored. Let's see what happens. I have lots of jokes about my first encounter with bigger groups of uh, other cultures or like that's a lot about yourself so but like it's, it's not bad because I think that's only how people will tap into what you are and where you come from so I've gotten to really appreciate that uh, but anyway I work mostly in in southern Africa with uh, partners 
so it can be an, 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 an NGO group that wants to go and facilitate. So you really explore what communities they are working with. Because I think if we are to really be culturally relevant, I think it's always prudent to have people of that land spearheading these uh, really critical issues of land degradation and uh, reversing the land degradation and reclaiming back our pride. Because I think I come from a culture of pride, priding ourselves by being able to feed ourselves, being able to take care of our land, which we've lost over time because of many factors that we can't even unpack right now, right here. Mm. Um, so that's Southern Africa. I personally come from a, a tribe called the Ndebele tribe, a tribe of warriors and people of honor. Okay, I'll sound vain, but I really love my people. I love you people. <laughs> we want to hear about your people, please, precious. <laughs> Don't hide who you are. <laughs> yeah, so we are, we are part of the Nguni clan that, that obviously ran from a very powerful king uh, down South Africa, but uh, we came down to uh, settled in Zimbabwe, but we still, uh, uh, it's really the, even the warriors back in the day were people of such a uh, high dignity, high honor, and lots of pride in just our culture. So generally, Zimbabwe is really proud of the culture. We are different tribes who work here. And um, so I've also worked in uh, East Africa, um, Kenya, Uganda, and there's also different tribes there. So um, I've worked with the Samburu, a bit of the Maasai, and in Uganda with some different organizations where we're just talking about how can we really scale up the voice of all of our small organizations as regenerators? How can we, you know, multiply and amplify that voice? But really it's just from the grassroots. Um, so in general, so the culture is really diverse and yeah. dynamic. And most of the communities are led by men who are called elders. And uh, yeah, so you can find yourself in that case uh, as a woman facilitator. But I've heard lots of amazing lessons working with these people, which we can explore when you ask yeah. me. Yeah, so yeah, so really, I think that's in, in a nutshell. The, the type of background where I work in. Well, so but this is the, the problems are the same: land degradation, food insecurity, water insecurity, and in some extreme cases, you have uh, social insecurity where you uh, people are fighting gun violences, especially yes. in East Africa, for water, cattle raidings, and stuff like right. that. So, yeah, so the the issues are the same, but the cultural settings and norms are different. Right. And so you really, I mean, this is something you're actively, you're going to have to address is the social sustainability, right? Are these communities actually functioning in a way that is sustainable? And what does that look like on, you know, what we say very freely in the Western culture is a indi or individual, independent, like we're somehow in a silo or separate from our interrelationships around us, right? But how is that being sustainable? Um, I absolutely want to get unpack this with you. I want to ask people to start please flooding questions in. Seth, we're going to... Let me check. Yeah, uh, Seth is going to start sending, um, send them, can send me via text. I'll monitor some of the chat. But what you're starting to touch on is something I find really magnificent and fascinating um, and resonates a lot with experiences I've had as well as a woman um, in my work with what are... You, these are pastoralists you're talking about largely nomadic um, and this they're also patriarchal extremely so um, and I, I like to kind of when I when I teach and I speak with other communities to understand that you know when we say tribe tribe is an anthropological construct right this isn't 
ipso facto unity, we're talking about a group of fa families, right? And that, I mean, if we clans. just clans, yeah, and that's more more accurate to what. And if you just think about the diverse opinions that can happen, there's not in a family. There's not necessarily cohesion and agency, is what I'm is what I'm getting at. Um, I think sometimes in the West here we go tribes and we assume that they're all getting along and everything's fine and everybody's on the same page. Okay. So I want to ask you about uh, so many things in this way, but first of all, you as a woman, which I find fascinating, um, coming in, uh, first of all, how do you approach, what's your ethos for approaching them? Because you're also looking for social sustainability while you go in. Yeah, so uh, in most cases, especially in the East Africa, really I was just invited to okay. come in and start a dialogue. And um, so this was an organization called the, the Gravy Zebra Trust, and they work with amazing people in the Samburu land, but they have vast land where there used to be a flourishing elephants, buffalo, whatever you call it. But every day they've watched their land just wash away. And honestly, um, you know, they had worked with holistic management in terms of these guys had been talking about holistic management with the, with the communities. So they said, you know, you could come as a, a Mandevele girl in Zimbabwe. You could just come and talk to our elders. Mm. And I think in my work, what I've really learned is... Uh, after realizing that it's a very patriarchal community and the elders uh, who are men, they hold a very important role in that community. The mm -hmm. next layer would be warriors who also hold an amazing role of taking care of animals and defending the area. The elders mm -hmm. defend the area by saying certain devotional prayers every morning. They give reports every morning. How are things looking? Is everyone well in your house? At night, did everyone spend the day well? And then women at the same time. These are really organized structures that uh, to a certain extent also being a young um, Southern African girl, I hadn't really experienced firsthand. Okay. Um, yeah, exactly. And uh, some homes, uh, polygamous homes. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so the natural um, re reaction, I'm, I'm just sharing with you some of the uh, mm -hmm important things that I've learned in my work, which is some things that I've had to kill in myself <laughs> so that I find the people that I'm working with at a place where they are so that the dialogue is fruitful because there's a thing about right. assumptions, right? So there's, there are two things uh, that I've been learning and also really chatting with Alan Savory and uh, most people are doing holistic management and working in communities. When you're planning for the land or planning finances or planning actions to do on the land, especially in a self-organizing environment, always assume you are wrong so that your monitoring yes. is on top right yes so that you know at the first sign that i'm getting the right result or the wrong result you know it at first hand yes but then when it comes to humans you should always assume that your assumptions are wrong about them mm. right mm. so i am zimbabwean i meet um a samburu man or a maasai man maybe there are things that i've heard that they have 10 wives for example and then, so you, certain red flags are raised and you can be on guard and then lose out on a chance to converse and probably also share your story and you hear their story. Yeah. So you, yes. So it's, um, 
I can't even say it's a skill. It's a sacrifice to assume that your assumptions that you have about such societies, they are not true. These are humans that have lived like this for a long time and they seem to be working out as a community, as a clan. They haven't let down on how they have been living. You get in there and humbly learn what has kept them going. And when you share with those tribes, because they are pastoral, they don't use uh, the calendar of time that we are using 2020. No, they want to know where you're from, your tribe and um, your people so that they count that year as a year that Ndebele girl called Precious came and visited us and spoke to us about regenerating our land. And so, you know, and so when you're talking to the mm. elders, you thank them for giving you that opportunity mm. to stand before them as their daughter. First of mm. all, you are African. Mm. I'm also from a pastoral community, which has now turned agro-pastoral, mm. but we love cattle. They are a symbol of well-being, of wealth. You, you, relate, you find places of relating. Mm -hmm. And the warriors, <laughs> I, I, I will never forget how I felt about them. They, they are very strong and res resolute. They are very resolved. If they sit in a meeting and they do not agree with what's being spoken about, mm. apparently they can leave the meeting. <laughs> so they can, yeah, they can get into a meeting and squat for like 45 minutes without sitting comfortably. And then they will sit comfortably as the conversation moves smoothly. And then you can never get to get that community to sit in a circle. Women sit alone, the warriors sit alone, and the elders sit alone. But my presence in some of these spaces, I've seen that women then voice out. Okay. They say, no, yeah, the elders are the ones who make the laws of the land, but they have let the ropes down. Mm. And, you know, and, and you can see the elders are now like, what? Did you just <laughs> did you say that about us? So it's and, unusual for that expression. Yes. Okay. It's, it's more unusual. But what, what I really liked was, even if that statement is said, you don't build on it in that assembly. Mm -hmm. What I found would be very useful is to pull out the elders mm -hmm. and have the facilitators from that area talk to the elders about the statement. Now you're challenging them based on that. Mm -hmm. To say, look, women are saying you guys are disappointing this system. And I think it's very sustainable because yeah. you, you are not giving them what to do. You're like, your people say right. this. Right. What do you have to say about your people saying this? And I've seen that you give them a lead and you keep asking questions mm. and you keep saying, I'm from the land of the brave as well. You guys are also brave. And mm. so you keep challenging each other by where you are from as mm. Africa. What is our pride as Africa? What do we want as Africa? Wow. I think find the common ground and learn from there. So that's, that's just a little bit. No, it's good because what I'm, <laughs> what I'm hearing is a distinction. Like there isn't blame, like, like you failed, but I'm hearing like we are not rising to the opportunity of the fullness of who we are. We haven't become that in that in that nobility. That sounds like an evocation of power and of sort of honor and integrity. Yes. So, yes. Right? There isn't. I don't hear shame in that. I hear, please arise. There is, is no shame. It's it. Yeah, okay. and and it's the best way to take it. It's not a shaming game. Amazing. Because once you do that, everyone puts on defensive uh, yes. wall, and yes. honestly, it really kills. 
and otherwise a dialogue that would have led to these people planning their grazing. We, yes. we did like 10 strong communities in like a few days to just doing the visioning process, defining what do we want. If we look back from our, on our shoulders, where are we from? How did we used to live? How was our landscape? Thinking at landscape mm -hmm. level. And where are we now? How did we get here? Now you're bringing in the issues of management. And then what do we see as our future? What do we want? This, I mean, this really sounds like a reclamation, a remembering of self. Like when you get so far down the line and you're, you're trying to make things and you're just not conscious to missing or remembering who you are, who your people are, where you come from, or who you wanted to be. You've just lost track of all of those questions that has, uh, I think it's really a clear that that's in a really emergent, passionate, fulfilling place to live as a human. And that mm. that makes transitioning or transforming the world around, however you're going to manage or what cattle you're going to take on or practices, um, you know, it, it gives it a flow and, a, and a, a, a nourishment to those actions rather than I have to do that because I'm, st I'm still trying to survive. And it's not that that survival goes away. It's not that it's legitimately on the line as a lot of our ranchers around, uh, around the world that we know of in their stories, but particularly in the US have gone through as they transition. Um, it is that rededication and commitment uh, to self. I mean, I'm listening to this and I worked with uh, a group, uh, rancher to rancher, and we would go uh, with Kent Reeves and, and Richard King and we would go stand around basically soil with ranchers and just kind of talk about it um, and what was present and happening there. Um, and it was really, uh, the inquiry always led to self, like, how were they doing? How were their hearts? How were their families, right? And it was this, like, and, and it wasn't necessarily holistic management, but it was the moment of going, are you living within the integrity of the human you know yourself to be? Do you feel good about yourself? Right uh, what we stand for as a community, yes. you know, like, for example, you have uh, communities that have names of plants, for example. And you're like, so, so they're like, oh yeah, for example, we used to have this plant, this community was called this, by this plant. And you're like, can you show me? They don't have a trace of it. And uh, you, you have certain features on that land that shows that this place was thriving once. For example, there's one uh, community called Kanyuambizi, which means uh, where zebras used to drink water, right? So that means that that river was perennial, zebras and all wildlife would come and drink water. But then now there's no trace of water and there's no busy, you know, or zebras inside to come and drink. So you can build from just those stories and that knowledge. Um, and it's not always a smooth sail, you know. So you now then use your, your facilitation wisdom to get the conversation going until everyone settles with the fact that coming out of this relies entirely on us. Even if we have a big legacy of big NGOs coming, bringing development, but yes. really just charitable works that have left people really crippled, thinking that rice will come from somewhere. We have to keep stimulating that conversation that um, our well-being is squarely on us. Well, that, that is, so I love this because this, there's about four questions here that let's see if we can tag together. Again, you're talking about the empowerment of a people. And I think this is a really important shift for environmental social justice community around the world that wants to support communities where there has been, I'm going to come in and save. 
I'm going to come in and caretake, as opposed to a genuine upliftment and empowerment that leaves them socially sustainable, creating their own visions, taking their own actions. And I'm really curious about that because you seem to have that ethos on board. How are you ensuring this with, with the communities you're working with that you leave and they aren't dependent on you? Mm -hmm. So the, the thing about uh, the I'm going to come and do good, I, I do feel like all of our actions, they have amazing intentions. Yes. I, I, I think that's called the do good framework, the ones that NGOs came in with, yeah. you know, to bring food to the hungry, hungry Africa, to bring this to hungry Africa. It is a do good framework. And they were honestly coming to solve a need. Mm -hmm. Again, that's managing in parts. Mm. Not taking out, if I bring just a bag of maize or millimil, am I resolving the root cause of what has brought these people here to needing me from outside to bring food to them? So right. I mean well, but it has unintended consequences where everyone's like, oh no, it's fine even if our crops failed, world vision is coming, for example. Beautiful. I, I not right. anyone. Yeah, no, right. Totally appropriate. So, Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. you you know that okay it was well intended but then what we are harvesting out of it where is this coming from right. like how, how how can we have evolved into a language that says when an ngo i wish we could find a new word altogether <laughs> comes into the spaces of communities everyone's like so what do you have for us it has been a legacy left by charitable deeds that meant well yes in some, right so when you shift to regenerative work with communities and i think it's important to always take along social cultural economic and environmental otherwise if we do not do that it's easy for regenerative agriculture to also look like yes. green revolution where you're just bringing natural yes. seeds natural leaves and leave things as they are Yes. And you still leave the same dependencies. Uh, Ten years down the line, regenerative agriculture will become like a greenwashing word again. Oh, if beautiful. Complexities outside. Absolutely. And that's, that's what I think there's starting to be a vigilance around things like climate smart ag, where it's really the band-aid methodology, where it's I'm going to cover it, it's segmented, it's going to look good, it's going to get money from somewhere, it's going to help in a moment, but it's actually an underlying catastrophe. And quite frankly, from my work with, with some of the Maasai in Kajero County, Kenya, like I was very aware of that hit that they took from NGOs. There was a lot of like, this is how I became aware of that have legacy being left in, a, in, in some of these communities, that it's done damage. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think um, um, as a facilitator or a person who works with communities, you realize that you wear many hats um, this cannot be yours, but you are coming as a person to create and stimulate a dialogue. Mm. And um, your understanding is that I'm here as a support. I can be a support. I can be a mentor. Mm. I can be a friend. Mm. I am here to create relations and maybe sometimes to be the neutral person to to cover gaps between tribal conflicts, between family historical conflicts, that. between myths that have stood against us for a long time so that we just are separate and we view things differently. Because when it boils down at the end of the day, especially when you're using the holistic management framework mm. in the conversation, when you create what is called the holistic context, which I love to think of as just the backdrop 
from which we make our decisions. Yeah. If we spell out the life we desire, what are our values? We all want the same thing. We all want to thrive. We all want to be sovereign. We all want stability. We all want security. We all want freedom. We mm. all want to express ourselves without fear. We all want a clean environment, clean air. We all want to go to the grave in peace, knowing that our children have a legacy that they'll be proud of that we once existed. We all want to look back and be proud of what we have done. And that is above any political ideology. It's above religion. It's above, it's above any, any construct that you can think of. We all want the same thing. Well, so but, then, it, yeah. Yeah, but to get people to that dialogue now, to yes. spell out what we want. That's where I feel like, I feel like is it. <laughs> I feel like this we could talk about for hours. Um, because I mean, the, and but this is really, I mean, just to be fair, like this is the heart and soul of the acorn. That acorns a, a sorry, a nut around here we have that you have to crack because we often go. Let's just do that practice or get them to regenerate the soil. And it's like, what is it when you come up against colliding worldviews? cultural identities, trauma. That's why I was going to ask you about the impacts of colonialism. Um, you know, everybody's got a heartbeat of a history that's, th that's throbbing through that door that has to be addressed before there's an open mind frame. Um, and th yeah, that's, I'm curious, what, what are the, you know, there's a, what is, what are the signs to you or are there cultural beliefs, values, um, is it a mindset? What has to shift before there's that first step in that transitionary sort of transformation process being possible? So if, if, if I can say, I think in terms of our okay. cultures. And we have questions. In, oh, we have questions? Okay. So I think we will have to chat a little bit and then open up yes, for questions. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so let's, let's, talk, let's talk first. Let's, let me layer it. Please. according to what I heard. Um, obviously, colonialism has a legacy on, on what we became. And, um, and now the more, because we're becoming a global village, we have televisions that are showing us the other side of life that we're thinking, oh, that is better than this. So there's, lot, there's been lots of influences just even above colonialism. And in some instances, some colonial masters shifted our people from their productive lands where they lived and danced well with nature um, and created reserves, created a, a barrier between our wildlife and people, and then put some people in what they called reserves, which are really poor soils for farming. So a lot of destabilizing happened there. And I think um, because of the introduction of money, industrialization, suddenly, even if a shift from Ubuntu happened, a shift from abundance and um, yeah, that space of abundance and generosity happened. And that what we have now, I believe wasn't our culture. We didn't have a degenerative culture like what is there now, but it's been introduced really by things that we have gone through, traumas, evolutions, where we ended up resolving to looking out for myself more than we, but yeah. I, and that I, 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 I may stand to be corrected, but I do know that that's not the Africa we have. Ubuntu is what we were groomed on. And we moved our animals together. We had clans and groups of people that kept their cattle together. So even this knowledge on holistic management is not new. 
we have stories of how kings and chiefs had one big crow, but they belonged to different households. So it was just that space of abundance, that space of looking out for each other. Even if you check socially, how did they live? How, you know, issues of rape cases and theft were very rare and the punishments were severe because it was very strange on the land, for mm -hmm. example. Yeah, so it was really that space of, I love to refer it as generosity and abundance. But now we have evolved, which is what has been blocking regenerative agriculture with introduction of um, the industrialized agriculture or the big ag um, and crops continue to fail. People continue to be in a panic mode and everyone is looking out from the, for themselves. Scarcity is what right. we're now thinking from. And half the time when you look at the land, what can it give me? So you mm. go there with one goal of a bumper harvest. I will have a bumper harvest, whatever it takes. And so you forget everything else that is alive in there, that you are learning together with your land to know how you, the land, and all the living things in it are going to thrive. Mm. But scarcity and lack is what has led us to being extractive. And that's probably one of the barricades in learning and adopting and accepting regeneration. We have to unlearn all the things that we've been taught about, synthetic fertilizers, all sorts of things that the Green Revolution came with. It's amazing. So to have an abundant mindset means you yeah. to have that gives you that open ability to think, to think long term, to plan, to strategize. And what I'm hearing is that really nourishing connection that comes from going, I'm interdependent with you. This is a we uh -huh. moment. And that the moment it becomes about me, my is the moment everything spins out of control and the dialogue shuts down or the process of shifting what I think Alan Savory, you know, calls about shifting paradigms and people often don't understand what that is, but what you're illustrating right there is a paradigm shift, I believe. Yes, yeah. yes exactly. And, and, and that's not been easy because even our academic structures have been, <laughs> Sorry. Um, have been set on, <laughs> have been set on manipulating parts, reductionism. Yes. So there's a to unlearn even from that space absolutely just the science in itself um alan loves to use uh, the the example of water i really love listening to alan because you're like every time he speaks you're like huh have you ever said that before like have i ever heard you say it because today it's like something totally today different I'm, really, mm. I'm proud of that man honestly <laughs> <sighs> anyway so he says um, <laughs> um this, the, the way we are managing in parts is like when you are managing water you know yeah. you think of the chemical combination of water is like can you separate hydrogen from the oxygen of this water and right. manage those two pieces separately right and then i was like now how do you do that it's like exactly but that's what we try and do with our environment we manipulate one thing and I think it causes, we tumble into one complexity after another and we, we find ourselves hopeless. But if we looked at this whole living body of water and you manage it the way we, we manage it now. Right. So, <laughs> well, yeah. it, um, oh gosh, precious. I want to get to some of these questions here and I would just, you know, say that with this, and so this is all dialogues and questions that we would love for you to continue in the Soil for Climate group 
-hmm. this series will also have its own page coming up. I'm going to develop that and also a group so that we can have everybody gathered there as well um, and continue That's this. So maybe we can look at the questions. Yeah, no, so I've got some, Seth has been texting some here. Um, okay. And so there's, a, let's see, there's a question about, are there any rainwater collection programs uh, or water-related projects in Zimbabwe or any in African region you're working in? Oh, definitely. Like, there's lots of partners that have incredible water um, harvesting programs, like including uh, the permaculture approaches of soils, and then actually holistic grazing in itself in the African landscape. There's no way you can dig up the mountains in Africa. It's plenty of land, but mm. the animal hoof in itself, when you grow grass, you've enabled the water, the biggest water harvesting sink that we have, which is our <laughs> soil. So <laughs> that too, I always love to look at it like that. Yeah. But at a smaller scale, garden scale, there's lots of amazing work with uh, organizations like Selat that are doing it in, in, the, in the eastern part of Zimbabwe. In Wange, we have Soft Food Alliance. We have lots of them. We have African Bushkins Foundation. We have, oh, there's lots. Lots Schools, of schools, culture programs. So there's lots. Um, there's an orientation and, for it. And these are all um, like practices, but mm -hmm. we, we, we bring them in the bigger frame of, okay, let's look at our land at a landscape level. What practice is suitable for what use? Again, well, you're running away from managing in parts, but understanding mm -hmm. that for a small garden, let's get a water harvester. For this, let's use... Right our cattle because our land is so big we will not have the money the energy and we don't even have the source of money to dig up well soils in these big landscapes well so there's there's a question here that kind of leads to one i actually had as well precious and i know we're getting short on time but they're talking about um uh how complex is it is it convincing governments to use holistic management especially in the field of farming where it's all about fertilizers and chemicals I wanted to talk to you about that exact sort of the intersecting realms between uh, worldviews, these paradigms we speak of, and it's great when you're just working with the tribe and it's you, and what happens when you're working with another tribe or academia or government agencies, um, and you know how he's, he's, this person's asking, um, how complex is it to convince the governments? Um, no, um, let me first of all tackle it from the biggest blockage actually okay. in any regenerative movement. It is professional and institutional egos because we have developed policies around degeneration and we were not aware, but you know, we, we've put in so much work and we have research that is baking it up and to shift unless and until people at grassroots make enough noise about it. Mm. Only then do I feel like the policies will be changed. But that doesn't stop us from still knocking in the doors of policymakers, which is what I think having worked with RI has been really amazing to know that we can mobilize at grassroots level, communal level, and then still knock the policy doors because unless and until policy changes, yes. governments will not know how to support regeneration. Yes. But uh, as, you, as you guys know, I'm sure everyone here will attest that paradigm shift is not an easy thing it will take a long time it will take a lot of us talking about it every time and here in zimbabwe 
um, actually we had made lots of progress um, in terms of introducing holistic management to the Ministry of Agriculture and at one point actually the vice president even came to the Africa Center for Holistic Management. Oh, wow. um, Yes, and we even had a government committee that was going to, it's a scientific committee that was going to, you know, to keep proving and keep spearheading. And we started dialogues with the Minister of Agriculture and the agricultural colleges to see if we can influence um, um, the curriculum at colleges. But then unfortunately, this has come in the midst of so many other noises of things that are going on up there. So yes, but there is hope because I think we still feel and even right now, that's what Alan is focusing on. When you have dialogues with him, his passion now is on policy. Um, mm -hmm. Unless and until we have a, a framework of policy making that will support living systems or whole systems management, we are not winning. We will keep having one policy that cuts across the whole country. Mm -hmm. And the whole country has got different rainfall regions. How do you implement same agricultural practices right, right. with different rainfall scales? So right. those are the four of our policies, but yes. you do not blame it because obviously they are coming from a background of managing in parts and reductionism. Right. Yeah, so I think um, well, we have done some efforts, but there's obviously a lot more that's going on, which it will take time. Well, so I, I'm going to ask you a couple other questions here, but also, you know, keep in mind one thing I would love to ask you, sort of what gift of wisdom would you give people who are looking to make a difference in this world of transforming into a, you know, sort of regenerative one, what you're talking about right now from the bottom up transformation, um, you know, I think it's very easy to go, well, I want to regenerate soil or lobby. And I, I just know from being in California, from the lobbyists to the shepherds to the ranchers to our markets to our farmers guild like it, it's been a symphonic effort to get any kind of legislative traction um, mm -hmm. and it was all hands on deck giving a rancher a sandwich and saying get in my car we're going to the state capitol so you can talk to your representative because they have to hear about this paradigm shift right and then we got soil initiatives so that's the i think the kind of thought process sometimes we don't go to we go well we're going to vote it in with some thing at some point but all the work up to that moment has to happen still i mean it's quite yes. a, it's quite fun but um it is a yeah, lot of but it's intense too yeah <laughs> um there's somebody was asking what your role precious is in the regenerative grazing project with maasai shepherds in kenya maybe that's to do with dalmas I don't know. That, that is a Dalma's project, um, right. but Dalma is like a good friend and a partner. Yeah. We, we, we talk a lot and we work together in holistic management. Makes me wonder um, who asked that question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Dalma's is also doing holistic grazing, so it's called Maasai Restorative Grazing. Yeah. So it's part of the holistic management program. Yeah, no, I see. We have another uh, a hub also in the Maasai, right in the Mara. Namara. the energy issue cons conservancy but then now there's also Dalmas. so i think the more learning centers or examples we have the better anyway mm -hmm. absolutely i remember when we started working on that a couple of years ago um so then so there's uh -huh. yeah there's a well it's there's just a broad i'm trying to think how to frame these questions just a couple here there's what are the what are they what was the ancient cultivation or ranching like in history but it's it's really hard because we're talking about so many different cultures and regions, and I don't know exactly where yeah. they're meant. 
yeah. yeah no it's, um, like what i say is that we didn't have a degenerative culture mm. um, obviously each community knew what word we had hunters and gatherers we had pastoralists mm-hmm. uh, yeah so that was i i can't exactly yeah. answer for everyone but no. for my tribe we had one big herd that was called the king's herd even if it was just different oh. clans moving animals together so so yeah. you had so this is interesting so you had a mega herd and you had multiple communities tending that herd yes because it would be different clans taking right. care of their own animals so really the wow. information is not new but um having alan having unpacked unpacking it looking at the wild animals in the african rangelands yeah he obviously saw that this is what works was having birds moving together their behavior being affected by pet hunting animals so in this case the human being is the herder who's going to impact the behavior of the animals and where they herd taking care of the needs of the land the need of the animal and the need of the farmer well so and be sensitive to time here we're totally over there's one last question here that kind of links up to this because what you're talking about is a vision that ranchers and, and shepherds here have been talking about actually in sonoma county california how you get a mega herd going especially on lands like the bureau of land management right this is national lands that is in dire need of grazing um, and there's a variety of limitations um, of why that would be, but we see that even with private landowners to have multi-species grazing in a mega herd moving over, because we have raging fires that are, are really frightening almost annually now. Um, mm-hmm. And it's fantastic to hear that, you know, that that was something that was communally done because it's the community part beyond the legislative part and the other red tag issues. Um, that we were looking at um that we honestly one of the powerful things is to really and um i know uh, sometimes maybe when you use the word holistic context it becomes a blockade like oh no we're not talking about that holistic management thing again but (laughs) just 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 trying to get consensus um by just finding out what people want and how do you think we'll achieve this if you look back and i don't have a big history of america but you guys had massive herds of bisons and how did they survive in those uh, environments so do you think that when you communally came together will it destroy us or will it work for us i think it's now just the the issue of how what dialogue works in what context in your people's um, uh, settings what would be an acceptable dialogue to obviously come back to that space where we we totally come up with what do we think is best for us Mm. And mm-hmm. that's that is a beautiful piece to think about. Um, <laughs> and you say to me, what is a gift of wisdom that I'll give people? Yeah, well, very often, <laughs> you know, I hear interviews with 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 you know ex- experts, right? I don't even use that term either. Just these experienced. Thank you. Please yeah. don't. I'm so I'm so I, I've I've did my term in academics. I'm out for life now. Um, yeah. Bless them. Um, and even, I have a group I love now and some amazing scientists, but the idea of an expert is so, so ridiculous to me. So, the, you know, one of the questions I hear thrown down is like, what can I do to make a difference in the world? What action can I take? And we all have different contexts and gifts, abilities, passions. What's a piece of wisdom, though? Because you, you're talking about some paradoxical approaches, you know, uh-huh. 
to and to some layers of nuance to coming at a re, creating a regenerative world. What's a, what's yeah, a I think the, the the piece of wisdom is um, give everyone a chance to transition from the knowledges that they've held highly for so long. Um, I think as as facilitators, our immediate frustration is why don't they get it? This works. <laughs> <laughs> but I think um, uh, it's, it's, it's a thing of really almost killing yourself. I, 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 I always say dead to self. Yeah. Because the brain is ahead of you. You know what works. But then someone has believed for so long that where they are is just perfect. But you also know that there is a possibility of an agricultural practice or approach that can change the whole narrative of this generation so i think it's it's a thing of dialoguing talking asking questions and here and there if you feel like they are ready throw in a bit of what you know and you know you can just say from what i've seen <laughs> you, you you cannot change the whole world but change one person at a time sometimes that's what it takes Mm -hmm. And we do not have donors yet who are ready to fund um, um, software, like trainings, transformation. Yeah. We don't have lots of those now. We want donors who are, we have donors who are ticking tables of, mm -hmm. we wanted to have 100 boreholes. We now have 100 boreholes and then they clap mm -hmm. hands mm -hmm. and that's it. But then we don't have a lot of donors, but we need a lot of us who are willing to take it one step at a time. It's not a fast process. It's not mm. um, a microwave process. It's lots of talking and behavior change. The actual work, planning, grazing, 30 minutes, you're done. You follow a memo in the chat what? and the animal on the land. <laughs> um, but to actually get people to that space where they will do the grazing plan and follow it through yeah. and manage with the 24 letter word plan control manage replan right. all that it takes it takes a lot more the technical yeah. stuff is, is everywhere people can do it but you have to understand the dynamics socially precious i'm hoping that one of the silver linings of the 11th hour that we're seeing in our climate, in our communities, is that people will look to leadership like you, if that's what we call it, because I don't know what to honestly call the skill set that you have. But I see it in, uh, you know, these transformative abilities to be with community, to allow them to open to a new way of being in creation, to step forward into their own vision and to implement it, to mobilize, right? And we don't have time, right, as a globe. We don't have time for business as usual and we need gifted individuals like you to teach that. And so I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm hoping the heads of donors will start shifting and go, I want to invest in that, not in the, the solar fencing. I want to invest in this because that's e the easy part, right? I want to invest in the person who can help ignite and, and enable um, people into their own remembrance and, and, and power. And I don't know what that what that is or how we qualify what a being is that does that or give it a name. But um, I, I think I hate to say it like this, but I think there's a market for it based on what the world needs. right now. You know, so well, I, like my only hope is that the future generations will be happy we once lived. That's my only hope. 
I hope we leave enough a little seed. And I think every day is a time to just plant a seed of hope, a seed of different thinking, even if you don't see it popping right there and then, because it's mm -hmm. tempting to also put yourself under pressure to yeah. see action. But sometimes it's just planting seeds and watering them slowly. Absolutely. No, uh, thank you so much for having me here. Thank you, Precious. It's such a, such a treat. I'm going to post one other question, I think, in the in the soil for climate group we'll make a group of this for sure um of, of the women of regenerative ag so we can all stay connected it's part of the goal of the series is so people can start interacting and as and talking about this line of questioning as well um we're so grateful for your time thank you precious thank you for your work and your integrity i love the way you have communicated and told me what matters to you and it's inspiring for me and for everybody here today um, uh, Seth, Carl, thank you so much for being in the background there and to, uh, yeah, to Ari Botanicals, the hemp apothe apothecary. We'll be here next week with Amber Smith, who's the program director for the Women in Ranching, another phenomenal, uh, wise, wicked uh, uh, thinker uh, with a wonderful heart doing incredible work in the world. Precious, thank you. Really. Thank you. Thanks, Aurora. Thanks Yay. Thank Yay. You. Bye. <laughs> Bye. 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 <laughs> okay.